We are uh, coming down the home stretch of our sermon series called Pray as we look to the various aspects of prayer and the different ways that we pray. And we are in the, uh, the final uh, stages of our 40 days of prayer. I'd encourage you, if you haven't uh, yet picked one up, on the tables in the back, there's some of our prayer guides, and we are continuing our, our 40 days of prayer. This is our 40th year our church, as a church family. It's our 40th birthday, and so we are kicking off our 40th year uh, in a season of prayer. Uh, one of the things uh, really, I wanted to let you know real quick before we dive into the sermon is that coming up at the conclusion of our 40 uh, days of prayer, we're going to be launching into uh, a 40 acts of generosity. And so that's coming up uh, March 1st. So, um, so real quick, we're going to do Easter again this year. So, yeah, just going to keep that. We've been doing it for 40 years. This is, we're just going to keep that truck a-going. And, uh, and also a Good Friday service. And one of the things about Easter, Good Friday, is it can become tradition. It can become trivial. And so one of the things that we want to do as a church family is prepare our hearts for Good Friday and Easter by celebrating and recognizing the season of Lent. And so usually in Lent, you'll spend about 40 days and you'll fast from something. You'll give up something, uh, uh, time, energy, uh, whatever it is. That, and so you have more time, more energy, more resources for other things. And during this season of Lent, what we would, uh, are going to encourage our church family to do is to use that extra time, that extra resource, that extra energy, whatever it is from the things that you're fasting from, to move towards more generosity. And every day for 40 days to, to seek to do an act of generosity each day. And so I'd encourage you as you are making your schedules and things like that, if you would block off just that season of Lent, March 1st through April 13th, we're going to be sharing a little bit more about how that'll look for us as a church family. Pretty much every weekend, we're going to be having service projects in the community, uh, in local schools, local uh, organizations, nonprofits, and things like that, as well as daily uh, reminders and opportunities for you to engage uh, in generosity. And for those of you that have younger kids at home, we'll have some resources for you too as well uh, to bring your children along with you as we engage in the season of generosity. As a church family, oh, one more thing real quick too. Um, we have today, uh, given that it's our 40th year, we're also talking a lot about what it means to be involved uh, in the church family and specifically as a member. And so if you're not a member of Desert Springs Bible Church, you'd like to know more about what it means to be a member. Today at 4 o'clock in the conference room, which is behind the worship center here, so you go to the back part of the parking lot, at 4 o'clock I'll be hosting uh, our next membership class. Coming to the class doesn't mean that you're signing up to be a member. It just says that you're interested about what we're doing as a church family and, and maybe you have some questions and you'd like to know more about our mission, values, vision, uh, how we're governed, and uh, what we believe, I'd encourage you to join me today, 4 o'clock, in the back at the conference room, again, behind the worship center. And so now we're going to experience a very rough transition. Are you ready? Now we're transitioning into the sermon. We... Uh, are coming down, uh, this is our, our, the last couple of sermons on prayer, and today what we're talking about is praying our pain. Pain is an inevitability. We are all, those of us who are humans, going to experience and have experienced pain. We come into this world experiencing pain. And so today what we're going to do is we're not going to so much talk about what pain does or why pain exists, but rather what do we do in the midst of our pain? Another way to say it is how do we pray our pain. And we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel today. 
chapter 1. If you guys have a Bible, I'd encourage you to uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1 along with me. If you don't have a Bible and would like one, we have print Bibles available underneath the giant 40s. Uh, There's some uh, print Bibles available on the table in the back. If you have a digital device, we're using the English Standard Version. If you don't have a Bible app on your phone, if you go to your app store and look up version, Y-O-U version, uh, that will uh, come up. That's my suggestion uh, to you as far as ease of use and things like that. And we're in 1 Samuel, which is in the Older Testament. If you're not sure where that is, you can look in your table of contents. It's right after the book of Ruth. And 1 Samuel, so so some of us uh, were were a little bit familiar with how the Bible, kind of the story arc of the Bible. And so for those of you that are hanging with me there, 1 Samuel is transitioning us from a time of chaos during the time of the judges into a time of a king or kingship or the monarchy. And so we're going to move from the time of the judges, now shifting into the time of kings. And so you have people like King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And 1 Samuel is kind of the first of volley into that uh, new moment in history. And what we find as 1 Samuel opens, this kind of grand epic story, we find a woman pleading for a son. We find a barren woman longing in anguish for a child. In this big shift from the time of the judges to the time of the kings, we find at the very beginning of this new phase, a woman in anguish. Uh, Her name is Hannah, and she is longing for a child. And Hannah is pleading with the Lord. See, there's this thing with Hannah's life where uh, she has been found to be barren. She has a husband, Elkanah, and also Elkanah has two wives, one wife named Hannah, one uh, wife named Peninnah. Now, hold on a minute. How many wives does this dude have? Two wives. So, chickity chickity check. In the Bible, there are times where God is describing things to us, and there are times where God is prescribing things to us. You know when you go to the doctor, you get a prescription? That's the doctor telling you, you should do this. You describe your situation to the doctor, the doctor prescribes the treatment to you. Do you see the difference between description and prescription? Okay, come on now. Do y'all see the difference between description and prescription? Give it to me. Okay, so what's going on? Is like some of us are like, I can get another one? (laughs) No. What we have in uh, uh, the elk man's life here, Elkanah's life, is we have what I am going to say, and I think uh, any husband in the room is going to need to, at this moment, amen me if you're sitting next to your spouse. Elkanah has made a mistake. Okay, very good. Okay, ladies, take note. So he, he has made a mistake, and likely what's happened, and this is fascinating, likely what's happened is he married Hannah first, and the scripture says that he loves her very dearly. He married her first, but she was, she was barren. And so he marries another, and then she has a ton of kids. Her name is Peninnah. Right, Valentine's Day is coming up. Don't use 1 Samuel as your verse in the little card. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. I'd suggest Song of Solomon, okay? Suggest that. Stay away from 1 Samuel. Right, we've got a little bit of a messy situation. P.S., guess where God uh, chooses to work like every time? 
in the midst of messy situations. It's it just, you read through the Bible, there's no heroes except for Jesus. So uh, we have uh, Hannah here. She's got her husband, Elkanah. She's got like a sister wife, I guess, uh, named Penina. And it's awkward and weird, but she is longing for a child. And she goes to a house of worship. Let's just uh, kind of say she kind of goes to a chapel or a church. And she goes and she prays. And in this chapel, in this church, in this house of worship, in this place, is a priest named Eli. And Eli's there. And then this is where we pick up the story. So she's left her uh, family. Uh, uh, she's now kind of by herself. She's kind of in a, in a chapel, in a, in a church setting, in a, in a place of worship setting. And this is what it says in chapter 1, verse 10 and on. She, that's Hannah, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said... Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Now, TV time out. Remember who Eli was? Right? Priest, he's like Pastor Eli. He's hanging out in the chapel, okay? He's hanging out. He observes her mouth, verse 13. Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord." Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. This is the word of the Lord. I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. One of the things that we notice right off the bat is this. It is okay to be sad. It is okay to feel anguish. It is okay to feel that pit. Hmm? You see, we do this, this crazy thing. Uh, many of us uh, who maybe have been around church for a while, there's this weird things that some people in Jesus' name kind of do, and they say, you know what? I, I don't experience pain. Pain's not a big deal for me. You know, I'm just praising the Lord. Or like when the sickness comes or the relationship is broken, when that happens, we just say, you know, I'm just claiming my healing. It's not bothering me. It's not affecting me. I'm not dealing with it. I'm just, I'm just kind of floating above the world in some sort of like, uh, like sky fairy-like state and just kind of, I'm just up here because, you know, the Lord is good and he's going to take care of everything and, and I'm not really feeling any of that pain. And that lasts for like two minutes in my life. It's okay to feel pain. It's okay to feel anguish. Here, Hannah is a barren woman. And in her life, there are all these external pressures that are bearing down on her to have children. Number one, there's the personal desire to have children. Many of us know what that is like. The Lord hasn't given us children yet. And in this culture, that's usually where it ends, although you might have um, a mom or a grandmother who's kind of nagging at you, when are you going to have kids, when are you going to have kids? So there might be some familial pressure. One of the interesting things is it's highly likely that Elkanah had some familiar pressure, like husband, right, the elk man, he probably is like, hey, I'm doing my part, you need to do your part, right? And she's feeling the pressure of the internal desire to have children, she's likely feeling the external pressure of her, her spouse wanting to have children, also she might be feeling like she's letting him down, 
And so you have some guilt and shame woven into this mixture of pain and anguish. Moreover, and we, this is distant to us, but in that culture especially, and in many cultures even today, there's a cultural expectation that if you don't have kids, you're a detriment to the society because you're not making more people for the army and for the industry. When you're living in a, in a, in a, in a smaller setting, you're living in maybe a clan-like structure, you are expected to produce offspring for the betterment of the culture, for the betterment of the people, for the betterment of the city, for the betterment of the nation. If you're not producing, you are a detriment to us and to our community. And that pressure is highly likely a part of what's bearing down on Hannah. You add to the, uh, to the song of pressure that she is listening to, you have this second wife, Peninnah. It says earlier in the text that she was prodding her and mocking her and making fun of her because Peninnah, the second wife, had tons of kids. How many does Hannah have? So how does Hannah feel? Anguish, sad turmoil, vexation, she's perplexed, she's anxious. And it's okay to feel that way. Pain is reality. And it's okay for us to feel that way. I don't, uh, I don't know where this comes from, although I have some ideas. I, I hear people on TV who, are, who, who seem to be proclaiming the name of Jesus say things like, what God wants for you in your life is that you are to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And that's true in an eternal sense, meaning if you find your health, wealth, and prosperity in the gospel, and Jesus is your all in all, and he is your wealth, he is your treasure, he is everything that you can ever long for, I fully agree. But if what we're talking about is money, if what we're talking about is a clean bill of health, if what we're talking about is cribs, status, houses, and my rims continue to spin when I press on the brakes, if that's what we're talking about, that's God's will for my life, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Like Broseph, check this out. Jesus, big deal. He says, follow him. And you know what he says? To follow me, Drive up in your Lexus and follow me. Is that what he says? No, this guy's crazy. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And where does Jesus go after that? He goes to Calvary. And he dies penniless, childless, beaten, abandoned, and abused, and betrayed. That might be God's will for your life. And you are not stepping outside of God's will if you are experiencing pain and suffering. Like there's a whole book of the Bible called Job that's basically like telling you and screaming at you those things you're seeing on TV is a lie. In fact, much of the time God gives to us suffering and pain to shape us into the person that he wants us to be. It's a blessing to some extent. I don't mean to make light of it. I don't mean to be trivial about it. I certainly don't mean to belittle it. But when the scriptures speak about pain and suffering, it speaks about pain and suffering as a reality that every one of us is going to face. And that you and I are not necessarily apart from the will of God because we're experiencing pain. Some people, I, 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 I engage with people, they say, you know, I got cancer. What did I do wrong? I mean, you might be right in line with God's will for your life. And P.S., and I don't mean to, guys, I, I certainly, mm, I love you guys. Like, we're all dying. You know that, right? Like, in 150 years, unless we all become robots, which I think is a little cool, but also simultaneously horrifying, um, or we do the cryogenic freezing thing, like, probably, highly likely, in 150 years, 
we're all getting taken out. And so there's a reality that's there, and we are not outside of God's will just because we're suffering. P.S., Jesus, uh, king and creator of the universe, holds the universe together with the word of his power. Jesus, um, the reason your nose is above your mouth and stays that way is because Jesus has cosmically holding everything together and has created the, 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 the laws of the universe, the molecular structures in such a way that your nose is above your mouth. He's doing that. When he found out, that's Jesus, when Jesus found out that his friend Lazarus had died, Jesus shows up on the scene and he doesn't say, I'm just praising the Lord. He doesn't say, I'm just gonna claim a healing here. What does Jesus do? Jesus wept. My uh, granddad used to use that as a curse. <laughs> I don't know if your granddad ever did that. He'd, get, he'd stub his toe and he'd be like, Jesus wept. <laughs> I don't think he meant about the toe. I think he just, it was just the thing he said. I don't know why he said it. But I want to encourage you to consider that that shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept, is one of the most profound truths because in Jesus you have something so unique, contrary to every other worldview, that the cosmic king and creator of the universe has taken on flesh and feels sad at the death of his friend. I challenge you, I know that there's a lot of you who are here who aren't Christians and you're still trying to figure the whole Jesus thing out. I challenge you to look at every other worldview and see if you can find any figure in human history, in literature, in any religion that is that nuanced. The cosmic king and creator of the universe who holds the universe together with the word of his power weeps at a funeral. It's okay for us to be sad. It's okay. But what do we do with it? Well, one of the things that we know to be true is that in our pain and in our suffering, the majority of the people, if not every person that we experience, does not completely ever understand our pain, and the comfort that they provide is subpar at best. We know that when we experience real deep anguish and pain, the people around us, the ones who love us even, they never fully understand the depths of the pain and their comfort is subpar at best. Eli, Pastor Eli, Priest Eli. Hannah comes into the church, verse 13. Check it out. She's praying. She's, she's doing that pray thing where she's, she's kind of so into it that her mouth is moving, but she ain't talking. You guys know what's up? You guys ever done that before? You know, you know what she's talking about here? Okay, so, so Eli, Pastor Eli, sees her, and then he goes up to her and he's like, you drunk? Why are you drunk? Pastor of the Year Award. <laughs> Here's this barren woman pouring out her soul to the Lord. He doesn't even lead with, can I help you, ma'am? He leads with, woman, why are you drunk? Put your wine away from you, right? Home run, dude. Your emotional IQ is like so low. What do they call that? Your EQ, your emotional quotient, right? It's like super subpar. Somebody, this guy needs to go back to the seminary and have a class on counseling because this is not good. Eli's comfort is like a, tra a train wreck a bit there when he starts off. Elkanah, uh, uh, the husband of, of two wives, uh, Hannah and Peninnah's husband, Elkanah in verse 8 actually says this. Um, he says this in verse 8. Elkanah, says, uh, uh, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Like, dudes, for those of you that are married, have you ever, yeah, you've asked, like, why are you crying? Like, are you crying? 
right? You'd be watching a TV show and you're like, what? Right? You know this feel. You know what, you know what he's feeling here, right? Like, are you crying right now? Okay, so this is what he says. Why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Now, real quick, I believe that he loves her. The scripture says that he loves her very much. And as messed up as the marital situation is, it's clear to me that he loves her and he's trying to do the right thing here. And this is what he says to try to comfort her. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? <laughs> By her action, she's like, mm-mm-mm. Mm-mm. Remember when I went to your other wedding? Mm-mm. <laughs> nope. Nope, not. He's trying to comfort her, and he kind of says something that's like subpar, right? We do this to each other, right? I mean, it, it's so hard to be a friend and a comforter because you're, you're never quite sure what to say, right? You, you've all been there, right? You, you, feel, you feel how inept you are when you're trying to bring comfort to someone who's truly in anguish. You say things like, hey, hey man, it's, it's going to work out in the end. Like, oh, it is? Oh, well, okay, then I'll just go on living life. Thank you so much. It's going to work out in the end. P.S., that's a bold-faced lie if you don't believe in a sovereign king, creator of the universe, who holds the universe together in the word of his power and sovereignly ordained everything come to pass. If you believe that we're nothing more than the product of random chance, if this is all just chaos, to say it's all going to work out in the end is dumb. Like the sun is trying to kill us, Okay? It's not going to work out in the end if there's not a God of the universe. So we say things like, oh, it's all going to work out in the end. You know, here's a precious moments card. Hopefully that'll make you feel better. We give flowers that we kill to people to say to them, it's all going to work out. And then what happens to the flower? It creates a daily reminder of the finitude of life. Like first they're beautiful and then the next day it's like, meh. You're like, oh, this is cheering me up. Thanks. Guess where I'm headed. Fertilizer, fertilizer, thank you. I appreciate your, right? We, we don't know what to say to each other. A buddy of mine who's a, a minister said that he was at a funeral once. He's standing, uh, they were at the, at the ceremony, at the viewing. He's standing down and, and there everyone's doing the shaky hand thingy and it's a widow, uh, husband of many years had passed away. Husband standing, or excuse me, the, the pastor's standing right next to the widow. As people are coming up, they're doing the shaky hand thing. And then this person's just straight up, like, like lean in here. Like the person straight up says, I am so sorry. I know exactly how you feel. My dog died last week. And then the pastor just straight up. <laughs> now you know how she feels. Neck punch. Okay. Where is our comfort going to come from? Right? I mean... I mean, we, even the most, even the people closest to us, when they try to comfort us, it's, it's somewhat helpful, but it's always incomplete, isn't it? I mean, it's just always, it, it, it's like it works for a little bit, and then the next morning, it's like, what's up? Like, I'm back to square one. C.S. Lewis, who was an author uh, in the uh, mid-1900s, British guy, which makes him exponentially cooler than you people, uh, British guy, Theologian, author, scholar, that whole bit. He, um, he was a bachelor until late in life. And he kind of thought like, I think that's it. I'm just going to live my life as a bachelor. No problem. That's going to just be my jam. And then late in life, the Lord brings this woman into his life and they, they're married. 
And then she finds out she has a terminal disease and then she dies. And Lewis even talks about how like, is this just a cruel trick? I was fine before I met her. I was fine living the life of a bachelor and then you give her to me and then you take her away from me. And he talks in a book called the, uh, A Grief Observed, which is basically his, uh, some journal entries of his um, as he observes his grief. He says this, maybe you've been here. I see people as they approach me trying to make up their minds whether or not they're gonna say something about it or not. And I hate it if they do. And I hate it if they don't. Grief, the, the, the despair, the anxiety, the weight of it, the pain of it, the consolation from those around us, even those that love us dearly, never truly satisfied our, satisfies our longing for comfort. So what are we to do? I'm glad you asked. There must be one that we can go to who not only understands and can understand our pain, but also can provide comfort for our pain. We are longing for this in the midst of our suffering. Look at verse uh, 15. This is fascinating to me. She says, um, uh, Hannah answered him, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. So uh, actually, let's back up to 14. Um, Eli says, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Okay, so what's Pastor Eli accusing her of? Right, being drunk, right? Pouring out some wine. And she says, uh, in verse 15, but Hannah answered him, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. See, Eli thinks she's pouring out some vino, and she's like, I've just been pouring out my soul. And I love that imagery. Just as you take a carafe of wine and pour it into a cup, and, then, and for, um, for a lot of us, we just keep doing that till it's empty. What? No, I know you people. No, I know, Right? Pour it out till it's empty. In that same way, that visual imagery is used of her pouring out her soul, getting it to the last drop, that the soul is completely exposed before the Lord. I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. I'm a woman deeply troubled. I'm deeply vexed. And in my anxiety and my vexation and my pain, I am just coming before the Lord and I'm pouring it out like I would pour wine out into a cup. I remember talking to, uh, well, I remember, it was last week. So, pretty good memory, Caleb. Like, I remember last week, I was talking to a man about my age who's an alumni of uh, Paris Valley High School and also Paris Valley Community College. He currently serves as a tech in a local uh, hospital, medical institution. And he came to the United States as a refugee from Congo. He's a Tutsi, and at one point in time, uh, the government basically came in and said, we're gonna do some, uh, some extermination. And so they began killing a lot of his people. And so he fled and, and, and hid and was running and hiding. And finally, uh, he's caught. After some of his family had died, he, he's caught. And I believe it was, if I remember correctly, it was 18 months he was in prison. And there would be weeks on end where they wouldn't feed him. And then they would feed him again. And then they would get so sick that many of them would die because their bodies couldn't handle that influx of calories and things like that. Same clothes, day after day. He said the beatings were atrocious. It was violent. He was the age of many of the junior hires that were at our retreat. He was that age. I said, what do you do? What do you, what do, you do then in this prison cell? He said, we would pray. He said, I would pray. I'd get angry at God. I'd be sad, and then I'd pray. 
because what else can I do? And there are those of us who have experienced such deep pain that we're basically at the point to where we say, what else can I do but pour my soul out before the Lord? When we do that, friends, it is not pointless. One of the things that happens in prayer is that the Lord will reveal ourselves to ourselves. You never truly know yourself until you know yourself before your creator in prayer. Uh, Herbert was, uh, George Herbert was a poet way back in the day, and he says that prayer is the soul in paraphrase. The summation of your soul presented to the Lord. If you were to listen to your prayer, you're paraphrasing everything that's going on into your soul and presenting it to the Lord. It's the soul in paraphrase. And we pour ourselves out to the Lord. One of the things that he does then is he can help us dig down deep. Why is it that we're sad? Are we sad because of a righteous reason or an unrighteous reason? Many times that I'm sad and in anguish is because I have unmet expectations, because the things I was clinging so tightly to have been taken away from me. And that becomes revealed to me as I lay my soul bare before the Lord, as I pour it out, so to speak. Do you do that? In your pain, in your anguish, in your, in your frustration, in your vexation, in your anxiety, do you take your soul and pour it out before the Lord in prayer, laying it bare before him and allowing him to speak to you? It is his megaphone to rouse us, C.S. Lewis says. What's interesting to me is, as this story continues, is that Hannah's prayer is answered kind of. See, what did Hannah want? Come on, what did Hannah want? A son. What did she get? Well, we find out that she gets a son. Let me ask you another question. At the end of the day, what did Hannah need? See, what's interesting is the Lord gives her a son. And she remember that vow she made, and remember, I'm not suggesting this is prescriptive. I'm actually going to suggest this is descriptive. She kind of makes this bargain with God and says, if you give me a son, I'm going to give him, uh, so to speak, to the church. I'm going to give him over to Eli. I'm going to give it to the Lord's service, and I'll, 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 rate, I'll wean him, and then I'll give him over uh, to, to the church. And just real quick, I just did want to say, uh, for those of you that are parents, listen, don't do that to us. Please pick up your children from Adventure Kids in a timely fashion. Please do not come and say, hey, Hannah did it. I'm done with this one. We, we want to love them for 90-minute stretches, okay? We really do. Um, she, gives him back, like she gives him to the service of the Lord. She gives him over to Eli, which is fascinating to me. What did Hannah actually need? Remember all those um, societal pressures and personal pressures and other things that were going on, cultural pressures, uh, that were causing her to want a son? What did she really need? She needed wholeness, right? She needed to be made whole. She needed to be a real person. She needed to be whole. She was experiencing brokenness. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is this. She knows that she will not be spending her life with her son, and yet she's happy. She, in fact, prays this joyous prayer in chapter two. And listen to what she says. I'm going uh, to jump around a little bit, but this is all in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. I encourage you to read it in its entirety. She prays like this. After she has a son and she's committed to giving him over to the Lord, she prays like this. Listen. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. The barren woman has born seven. That's kind of weird to us, but what she's saying is that those who are barren, it is as if they've had the perfect amount of children. Why? Because the Lord is our rock. 
The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What's fascinating about that last little piece, that language of his anointed, is it's the first time this language of his anointed or Messiah shows up. Something's going on here with Hannah that's deeper than just, I'm happy I had a kid. There's, there's a rockness to this that is firmer than just, I have progeny now. There's a foundation here that she's clinging to and she's, she's revealing it to us and that is this foundation that when you and I go to prayer, we go to one who is our Messiah, the anointed one, who not only knows what it's like to experience pain, but is capable and powerful to bring comfort. For she, Hannah, in her prayer, foreshadows the coming of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who gave his life for you and for me. And Jesus Christ died childless, penniless, abused, betrayed by those he loved, abandoned, so that you and I can receive comfort and help in time of need. Listen, check this out. When you pray, you are quite literally, if you pray to Jesus, you are quite literally praying to someone who not only says, I know what pain is theoretically, Jesus says, I know exactly how you're feeling. I know exactly how you're feeling. For I was betrayed, I was abandoned, I was abused. This is what Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says. Remember Eli got the Pastor of the Year award? Remember that dude? He was like a mediocre priest at best. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace help in time of need. Friends, when we pray, we pray to one who knows what it is to suffer, to experience anguish, to experience pain. And we pray to one who has risen from the grave, conquered over Satan, sin, and death, and stands ready to bring comfort and healing to all who call on the name of the Lord. You have an advocate. You have a great high priest who can empathize with you in your pain. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for the many ways that you provide for us, for providing us with this word this morning. Jesus, for providing for us grace, mercy, salvation. Lord, we entrust ourselves to you. And as we live and we seek to live for you, Lord, we know that we're going to experience pain and suffering, and so we pray that you would be our present help, our comfort, our rock, and our shield. Lord, we know that you love us. We see that most vividly displayed on the cross. And we pray that it would be in you, Christ Jesus alone, that our hope would be found. Amen.